0: We continue this morning in our uh, series looking at the penitential psalms, the psalms of confession. This is uh, week two of a seven-part series, and we uh, find ourselves again this morning in Psalm 32. I do want to just say a brief word uh, about our trunk retreat treat that we had this past monday night what a joy it was to see so many of you there serving uh, and interacting with those in our community there were some gospel conversations that were had a lot of good uh, t- uh, talks on different topics of theology and baptism uh, it was really exciting to see you and see all the, the the people that were gathered there and so thank you for those who helped Uh, Thank you for those who loved on our community so well. It was a joy uh, to be there. Someone was asking me, Nathan, you're an introvert. Do those type of events kind of bother you? And I said, well, actually, it's the complete opposite. I love stuff like that. I love just walking around, talking with people, and it was just a sweet, uh, sweet time. And so I just wanted to uh, thank you for your support in that effort and uh, being with us this past Monday night. Uh, Again, Psalm 32 Uh, Last week, I attempted to have us read this in unison together, and I I failed uh, in my attempt as we had to restart. So I want to make it clear this morning, in in line with the early church and the tradition of the early church, when they would read these seven psalms together and sing them together over the next six weeks, I want us to do the same. And so, if you would, let's try this again this morning. Let's all stand together. Uh, If you are not reading from the ESV, which I'm reading from, the words will be on the screen for you to read from there, but we're going to read in unison together. We're going to read uh, aloud together this morning, Psalm 32. And So if you would join me beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer." I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, They shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright In heart. May God bless the reading of his word. If you would remain standing with me as we pray together. Lord, we come before your word again this morning in desperate need of your help. Lord, that you would allow us to know your word rightly, accordingly to what your spirit has to say to us this morning. I pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds, that everything that is said and done in these moments would be pleasing to you, Lord. And it's in your son's holy name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in the fifth grade, uh, I had one of my first ever book reports that was due. And uh, my parents, being the very wise parents that they were, decided that as a, as a fifth grader, I had enough uh, responsibility or needed to be responsible enough to take care of this assignment on my own. So they sat me down and trusted me to do the work uh, and turn in the assignment on my own because now I was a fifth grader. And being the wise fifth grader that I was, I saw it as an opportunity to do the complete opposite of that and just not do the assignment altogether. I was like, this is great. Nobody's checking in on me, and so I'm just not going to do the assignment. The assignment due date came and went. I didn't turn it in. Nobody said anything. I was like, this is great. You just don't have to turn in your work and everything is fine. A couple days later, came home from school. My dad came home from work. He sat me down at the kitchen table. He said, Nathan, did you turn in your book report? I looked my dad straight in the eyes, and I said, yes. Uh, my dad said, well, that's too bad that you feel that way, because your teacher called me this afternoon and told me otherwise. At which point, I began to confess my sins to my father in true, genuine repentance. Lord, or dad, please forgive me. I, I made a mistake. And my dad, in that moment, uh, he said to me, son, there's a type of repentance that's genuine, and you got caught. This is not true repentance. I'll never forget that. Uh, There is a true and genuine type of repentance, a true and genuine type of confession that we see here in Psalm 32 this morning. Uh, A genuine confession that rests on the promises of God. Uh, Last week we began in Psalm chapter 6, the first of the penitential psalms, and we noted that it is not in its truest sense a psalm of confession. But we were able to lay a strong foundation in regards to prayer and who God is as we interact with him in prayer. And then over the next several weeks, we'll begin to build on that foundation as we consider what confession is and why it is so important in the life of the believer. Today, in Psalm 32, we begin to get more of a glimpse into what confession is. And we see several things in this passage that encourage that true, genuine repentance, true, genuine confession. And the first one that we see here is that confession produces happiness. Confession produces happiness. You see there in verse 1 the word blessed. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Verse 2, you see the word there again, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. This word in the Hebrew literally means happy. Uh, This is the same thing in the Greek. When we come to the Beatitudes and Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that same word in the Greek literally means happy. Now, in the Christian world, we tend to want to avoid using the word happy in regards to the Christian life, uh, and rightfully so because happiness is is something that the world has taken to mean something that we don't really uh, uh, affirm in the Christian life, a, a type of self-centered, prideful type of, of desire or feeling that we are seeking after. But we do see in Scripture that in Christ there is, there is a type of joy, there's a type of happiness that we have, a blessedness in knowing that our sins are forgiven, And so in other words here, David is saying, happy is the one whose sins are forgiven. Now, as we walk through Psalm 32, we're going to see David using three synonyms at a time to describe certain words. And there's this pattern of of these three words that he uses throughout, and you'll see it as we walk through the passage this morning. The first three words I want us to highlight here, though, are three words that he uses for sin. You see two of them there in verse 1. Uh, transgression. Uh, This is a type of uh, of rebellious type of sin where we are rebelling against God and his holiness. The second word there is used here in the ESV is is the word sin itself, the idea of missing the mark, missing the standard of righteousness that God has set for us. And then the third word for sin is found there in verse 2. My translation uses the word iniquity. Uh, This is more of a deliberate type of sin, the crooked deeds that we uh, do in our sinful life. And each of these words then is is connected to three separate words for the word forgiveness. Uh, You see it there in the text. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. This first word, forgiven, speaks to the reality of our sins being carried far away. Where the guilt of sin and death is removed and taken to the greatest distance away from us that it can be. He then says at the end of verse 1, whose sin is covered. This is the word for atonement. That the sinner is reconciled to God. And sin is a matter of the past, no longer brought against the sinner. uh, Their sins have been made atoned for. And then the next one that he uses there is in verse 2 Blesses the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. This is our word for justified, that once and for all act of coming to faith in Christ, where it is the righteousness of Christ that we receive. And so the emphasis here in these first two verses isn't so much on the different types of sin, transgression, sin, and iniquity, as it is the happiness that comes from the reality of knowing the three words of forgiveness. In Christ this morning, your guilt and your sin is removed completely, and you are brought into perfect fellowship with the Father. You are justified once and for all And there is joy and hope and happiness to be found in that. Uh, Later in Psalm 103, David again writes in verses 11 through 12 to speak of this reality when he says this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. If you are in Christ this morning, your sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west, and you have the righteousness of Christ. So we contrast the happiness, the blessedness of verses 1 and 2, to verses 3 through 4, where we see sorrow over unconfessed sin. He says there in verse 3, for when I kept silent, before he repents, before he confesses his sin to the Lord, notice what he's dealing with. He is in agony. His bones are wasting away. He is constantly groaning day and night. We see the heavy weight of God's judgment upon him there in verse 4. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Uh, We're going to see similar language to this next week in Psalm 38, the, the judgment of God being laid down on David and him feeling the burden of his sin. He is physically weak as if he has worked under the hot sun all day long. And it is only when David has recognized his sin and is genuinely repentant and sorrowful that he finds relief. A relief that only comes through true repentance and confession. My illustration at the top of the sermon, we just for a moment mentioned that there's a type of repentance that is not genuine. Uh, Theologians use two words to describe this type of um, repentance. What is true repentance and what is not? The first word is attrition. Attrition is a type of sorrow that we feel over fear of punishment, Uh, In other words, you're only sorry because you were caught, and punishment is coming to you. Uh, We can think about Judas. After his uh, wicked deeds were brought into the light and he was caught, what did he do? He returned to the high priest, he threw the silver before them, and he went and ended his life. He was uh, not repentant in a contrite spirit, but from a spirit of attrition. He was sorry that he was caught, and punishment was coming to him. True repentance, though, is, comes from a contrite heart, the word we use as contrition. It is a sorrow over sin as a direct offense against a holy God. This is where true repentance and confession comes from, where we realize that our sin is surely against ourselves and other, but ultimately it is against creator God. And the joy of confession comes from this type of repentance where we come before the Lord and we agree with him but we are sinners in desperate need of him and him alone. And so the application for us then, what do we do with this type of contrite heart is found in verse five. Look at what David did. He says what? I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and what? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. We again here see the three words for sin, sin, iniquity, and transgression, but this time they are attached to three words, three synonyms for the word confession. You can see it there for yourself in the text. Verse five, First, I acknowledged my sin to you. This is to make known He has brought something that is hidden and secret to him out before the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this in confession is that the Lord knows all of our thoughts and our deeds and our intentions. He knows our sin. He is not surprised when we make our sin known to him in confession. And yet David highlights a very important part of confession, that we are making something known that potentially we are the only ones that know about. Now, that doesn't mean every time we sin, we confess all of our sins publicly, but we do bring it into the light, which is the second word that we see here uh, in the text, or words, if you will, I did not cover my iniquity. These words here, uh, the word cover is that word atonement that we saw earlier in verse uh, two, or sorry, verse one, whose sin is atoned for or is covered And this this speaks to this reality of bringing our sin out of the darkness into the light of the gospel. That we are not taking our sin and brushing it under the rug and hiding it for another day, but we are willingly and eagerly bringing it into the light. The third word that he uses there in my translation is the word confess. He says there, I said, I will what? Confess my transgressions, my sins to the Lord. Interesting thing about the word confess is that it literally means praise. When you think of praise, what do you think of? You think of lifting your voice, bringing something out into the light of others to hear. That's very much what's happening in confession. We are making our sins known, bringing it into the light so that we might be about killing sin. Um, Genuine confession is an acknowledgement of all our sin and willingly bringing it into the light in agreement with God's perfect law. And so confession is first not forced by circumstances that you were caught or you're about to be found out. No, it's voluntarily done in response to our sinfulness before a holy God. And secondly, it is done in genuine agreement with God that we fall short of his standard for holiness each and every day. And that we are every day in need of his forgiveness. And so as we unpack confession more and more here, we go on to see that what it is that confession is actually doing Uh, Confession is confronting sin. We we see a lot of this in verses six and seven, uh, and more so in the fact that when we think about confession, it's not something that we're waiting to do when our sin has manifested itself in its biggest form and everybody knows about it. No, confession is something that we are doing regularly. And we see this taking place in verses six and seven. Look there at verse six. He says, Uh, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. This is very unique wording. We'll address here in a moment what this is definitely not saying about God. But what does he mean here? When God may be found. Interestingly, we hear similar words to this in Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, verse 6, listen to what isaiah says he says seek the lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts let him return to the lord that he may have compassion on him and to our god for he will abundantly pardon so here in isaiah 55:6 the idea of seeking the lord while he may be found I believe, is speaking more to the wicked person and needing to respond to faith in Christ today. Don't wait until tomorrow because you're not guaranteed the next moment. Today is the day of salvation. If you are in this place this morning and you have yet to repent and believe in Jesus, do not wait, dear friend. Christ could come in these next moments and at that point, it would be too late Repent and believe in Jesus today. Put your faith and trust in Jesus now. But go back to Psalm 32. Notice what he says here in verse 6. Let everyone who is godly, he has the godly in mind, not the wicked, offer prayer to you in a time when you may be found. What is he saying here? Here's what I believe. I believe he is telling us that there is a time to confess and it is today. In other words, don't wait Another moment to confess your sin. When the Spirit of God convicts you of sin, confess it to the Lord. Don't wait. We should be confessing sin daily. There's another part to this in the regularity of confession that we also need to look to circumstances in life under the sovereign hand of God as opportunities to search our hearts to see if there is sin in us and to confess our sin. And a great time for us to do that is in seasons of sorrow. Seasons of sorrow are good times for us to evaluate our hearts. Now it is hard to say in Psalm 32 in the context if David is in a season of sorrow. We see that he was at one point in verses 3 and 4, but we assume now he's confessed his sin, that he is he is happy that his sins have been forgiven but if you look at verses 7 we do get a sense that he is in a sense suffering verse 7 you are my or you are a hiding place for me you preserve me from trouble you surround me this idea of God being a refuge to him from trouble if David is in a season of sorrow and we know that David often was we saw it last week we'll see it again next week We are reminded that in seasons of suffering, God is potentially disciplining us for sin. Now, it would be wrong of us to think that all of our suffering that we experience is directly related to unrepented sin. We have to look no further than the life of Job. Job lost everything in a moment, and yet what does Scripture tell us? He was a righteous man. And we look in the the background, we know what's happening behind the scenes. God is doing something. He's allowing Satan to work in a way that would bring about the good and glory of God in that situation. And yet, I want to encourage us this morning, myself included, it is always good in seasons of suffering to stop and look at our lives and see if there is any sin in us. We also see this in the life of Job. In Job 11 verse 4, Zophar, his friend, comes to him and he says to Job, Job, you say, and then he quotes Job, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. What does Job, when he quotes Job here, what do we learn about Job? Job has already stopped in the midst of his suffering and said, Lord, if there is any grievous way in me, show me. Seasons of suffering are great opportunities for us to stop, evaluate our hearts, and confess sin, to be about killing sin. Confession is the chief tool that God has given us in our efforts to kill sin. And I, I want to say this again. Confesh- in confession, we agree with God about our sin, And we realign our thoughts and our affections and our attitudes with him and we affirm again that he is our master and sin is not. If you look at the life of of David uh, and his sin with Bathsheba, uh, you see the effect of sin taking hold of a man and spiraling out of control. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. He tries to cover it up, which leads to deception and the death of a man and Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And yet, where did it start for David? It started on a rooftop with a lustful thought. It started with a secret sin, a secret thought. There's a quote that says this, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Now, it's important for us, as we mentioned earlier, to have the right type of spirit of repentance. When we hear this quote, we don't want to be afraid of the idea of getting caught, and so we try not to sin, but in this quote, we want to understand that as we are in Christ, we do not want to disgrace the name of Christ. We do not want to sin against a holy and righteous God. And so I go to another quote by the Puritan John Owen, who said this, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Dear friend, deal with your heart daily. What you might perceive as a little sin or an innocent or minor thought or a harmless act can take us places that we do not want to go. Lingering over the magazine rack at Walmart. Having emotionally intimate conversations with someone who is not our spouse. Lying just a little bit on our finances here and there to get by little things nobody knows about, kill it, put it to death, bring it to the light, confess it to the Lord. At the heart of confession, though, is a trust in God's promises. In our last four verses here, we see that confession is sustained by the promises of God. Now, in verses 8 through 11, we see three things. The first is this, in light of confession. Confession is grounded in Scripture, God promises to lead his people in truth you see it there in verse 8 i will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go i will counsel you with my eye upon you there again you see three words instruct teach and counsel this is what the word of god is doing in our lives very much what we see in 2 timothy three sixteen, where paul tells timothy that the word of god is profitable it is sufficient in all of life and godliness the word of god is teaching us and instructing us and in verse 9 he illustrates Uh, how this looks in the life of people who do not allow the word of God to teach them, instruct them. He says, people who do not come to God for refuge and deliverance are like unruly animals that have to be bridled and disciplined. But those who come to Christ in repentance and faith do so out of a genuine desire for holiness and freedom from sin. They are allowed to walk in the Christian life in freedom from sin. The second thing we see here about confession in these closing verses is that confession rests in the steadfast love of God. There is assurance for those who draw near to God in the midst of seasons of sin and sorrow. Again, I I point you to verse 10 where we see a compare and contrast. Look at the first part of verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. People who do not come to God for refuge will be full of sorrow. But look at the second part of verse 10. But what? Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Those who come to him will be kept by the steadfast love of God. Now, this this is important. If you remember from last week, if you were here, we highlighted this word in the Hebrew, steadfast love. It's used over 250 times in the Old Testament. It's an important word for us to know. It's the word hesed. Again, my translation translates it as steadfast love, but this is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. That if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing And the truth of that reality that God's love over us is steadfast and eternal in Christ gives us confidence as we come to the throne of grace to confess our sins. And the reality of the steadfast love of God is just that. It is is real for you. The steadfast love of God is not an emotion or a feeling that you have. There are mornings when you wake up and you don't necessarily feel the steadfast love of God, but it is true for you if you are in Christ this morning. And this is important because Satan loves to use our emotions and our feelings to discourage us from confessing sin. There's nothing, no sin that you can do that is unacceptable for you to come before the throne of grace and find forgiveness this morning. Nothing. Nothing. But Satan would like you to think otherwise. He would like you to think that there's no forgiveness to be found at the cross for you. It's just not true. When we confess, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive our sins. The third thing that we see here is that there is joy to be found in confession. Notice the response of David to knowing that his sins are forgiven. We see three more words. Again, be glad, rejoice, and what? Shout for joy. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy. Our response to being forgiven for our sins is to sing praise and rejoice to the Lord. And notice who it is who's doing it. It says, all you upright in heart. The ones whose sins are forgiven, the ones who are walking in the path of righteousness with an unbending, being unbending in their convictions, unswerving in their conduct. They are daily fighting the fight to kill sin and walk in righteousness with Christ. Those are the ones who rejoice. And again, we have a guarantee that when we take our confession to the Lord, that he will hear and he will forgive. You can have confidence this morning when you bring your sins before the throne of grace that you will find forgiveness. When you move overseas, and I know some of you have, there's nothing more unsettling than taking all of your worldly possessions, your children's toys a homeschool curriculum that you've invested in, in dozens of suitcases and boxes, loading it up onto carts, taking it into the airport to the the airline counter, and willingly paying them to take your worldly possessions from you. Why is that unsettling? Because what are airlines notorious for? Losing your stuff. Why on earth would I give an airline company everything that I have? It's very unsettling. Uh, it's it's unsettling to do that even if you had just one suitcase with a couple of uh, pairs of clothes and your toothbrush in it, let alone if you bring all of your worldly possessions to them and say, here, please take this. Uh, it's a very unsettling thing. It is It is a burdensome thing to give something of value over to someone with no guarantee that they will do with it what they said they will. And yet this morning, we can know with certainty when we come before the throne of grace and confess our sins that God will forgive our sins. So, our response then this morning, in light of what we see here, is first, read the Bible. Where do we find the reality of what sin is? How does God convict us of sin? It's by his word without and his spirit within. And so if we're going to be people who are about killing sin and walking in righteousness, we need to also be people who read the word of God daily. Allowing the spirit of God to convict us of sin so that we can repent and return anew. Secondly, we need to rest in the promises of God. The steadfast love of God. We rest in the promises of God in all of life, but this is also true in confession When we come to him in confession, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and we rest in that. But third and finally, when we confess our sins and we know our sins are forgiven, what do we do? We rejoice. We sing praises to the Lord. We come before him and we lift up his name because he alone has delivered us from sin and death by the blood of the cross. And so as we close this morning, Would you let the Spirit of God, by his word, convict you of sin? It might not be earth-shattering, big, massive. Maybe it's just a simple thought. Would you bring it before the throne of grace this morning? Would you confess your sins before the Lord this morning? Do not leave this place without dealing with your sin. I want to close with a quote from a 16th century Puritan by the name of Richard Capel. He says this, no man was ever kept out of heaven for his confessed wickedness, but many are for their supposed goodness. I wonder this morning if there is someone sitting in this place and your confession is, I'm a really good person. And you think to yourself, if I were to stand before God, surely he would know that my good works outweigh my bad. I've never killed anybody. I've never been in prison. Never done drugs. Never been in trouble. I'm just a really good person. If that's your confession this morning, let me encourage you and plead with you to understand that no one ever entered into the presence of Christ for all of eternity with a confession of, I'm a really good person. My prayer for you this morning is that you would see that the reality for yourself this morning before a holy God is is that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. That is true of every single person who's gathered in this place this morning. Each and every one of us are sinners in rebellion against the holy God, and we are in need of deliverance. And praise God that he has made that way for us this morning by sending his son. God in flesh came near to us. He performed many miracles, signs and wonders. He was perfectly and utterly without sin. And he went to a cross and he died in your place so that through faith you might have the righteousness of God. And he did not stay dead, but he rose victoriously over sin and death once and for all. And right now he sits at the right hand of the Father. Would you make him your Lord and your Savior this morning? Would you confess this morning that you are indeed a sinner in desperate need of Jesus? And would you turn to him? Would you look to him and him alone this morning? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.